You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we have a discussion about the wealthiest person on the entire planet, Mr. Jeff Bezos. As everyone knows, Jeff is the founder of Amazon and numerous other subsidiaries. The amazing thing about Amazon and Jeff's rise to the top is it all happened within the last 20 years. Jeff grew Amazon from the ground up, and today his personal net worth is $143 billion. So just to put that in perspective, Jeff could spend $392,000 every single day for the next thousand years before he'd run out of money. And that's also assuming that he makes no interest on that money during that thousand years. So during the interview, we play some of his responses to various interview questions, and we cover a wide array of topics to include even his thoughts on space and his company, Blue Origin. Additionally, Stig was out on travel, so my good friend Brian Rutherford filled in for him. Brian is a former instructor of economics at West Point, and he's a graduate of MIT. So without further delay, here's our discussion around the ideas of Jeff Bezos. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right, so uh, welcome to the Investor's Podcast. Like I said in the introduction, I'm here with my good friend, Brian Rutherford. And uh, Brian, great to have you back on the show again, man. Hey, great to be back with you, Preston. So uh, we're going to be talking about Jeff Bezos. Everyone, I'm sure, listening to this knows who Jeff Bezos is. So without uh, going into all the background and slowing things down, let's just talk about the first question that we're going to play here. The question that Jeff was asked was, when did you know that Amazon is going to be way bigger than just a bookstore? And this is his response. Well, I knew that the books, strangely, because I was very prepared for this to take a really long time. I knew that the books um, business was going to be successful in the first 30 days. Mm -hmm. I was shocked at how many books we sold. We were ill prepared. Um, You know, I had, we had all the we had only 10 people in the company at that time, and most of them were software engineers. And so everybody, including me and the software were all like packing boxes. We didn't even have packing tables. And down, we were on our hands and knees on a concrete floor packing the boxes. And at about you know, one or two in the morning, I said to one of my uh, software engineering colleagues, I said, um, you know, Paul, um, we, uh, this is killing my knees. We need to get knee pads. And Paul looked at me and he's like, Jeff, we need to get packing tables. And, and I, I was like, oh, my God, that is such a good idea. The next day I bought packing tables and it doubled our productivity and probably saved our backs and our knees, too. So for me, it's I, I mean, there's not too much to really add to what he's saying here other than it's just crazy to think that this guy was packing books himself from the ground up from the very beginning. Um, you know, we had Ian Siegel on the show, uh, Brian, I don't know if you heard this interview, the, the guy from ZipRecruiter and the thing that he told us, he says, if you have something that is going to be big, he's like, you're going to know right away. It's not something that's going to just like kind of start coming into play three years later. He's like, you'll know right out of the gate if you've got something big. So I'm, I'm kind of curious if you have any piggyback comments on this one. First of all, I think entrepreneurs absolutely believe in themselves. They believe in their ability to 
um, find a, a market uh, and exploit a niche in it. And, and I think that that's what uh, Jeff was saying here, right? But it goes it goes back to risk. You know, I think about business plans, and, and you and I both uh, went through an MBA experience, and, and a lot of times business plans get, uh, get laughed at as a not worth the paper they're written on, but it's not about the plan. It's the planning that goes into it, right? So um, Jeff understood at that point he had done the the market analysis and understood that if you put a bunch of SKUs in one location and then shipped out from there, that was going to be a whole lot better position and really able to exploit this new thing called the Internet in 1995 uh, versus having distributed points of sale. And uh, and what the one thing he didn't know is timing. Uh, is is it Was it the right time for that business? And he said, yes, he knew within 30 days. Hey, I want to check out this uh, question where he where he was asked, uh, how has your leadership style changed over the years? I think this would be kind of interesting to uh, hear. It's changed a lot, mostly just because it's had to. You know, the company has changed so much, and uh, I can't, you know, when the company is 10 people or 100 people, I can be involved in every decision, not just, you know, not just the objectives, like what are we going to do, but even the methods, how are we going to do it? Uh, uh, you know, the CEO or the founder or whoever it is leading the company cannot uh, be involved in all of those decisions. They certainly cannot uh, be involved in the methods of how things are going to get done. So you do have to change your leadership approach as the company scales. Um, but, the, 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 but the principles of the company have not changed. In fact, I probably spend more of my time now on culture and uh, setting trying to set high standards for things for the, for the like customer obsession and um, uh, uh, inventiveness and things like that. So for me, I'm, I'm kind of a teacher now, so it's changed quite a bit. And I have this great luxury. I love my job. I tap dance into work. Even I, get back, I just got back from an amazing vacation in Norway. Um, I got to go dog sledding and go to a wolf preserve and all this really cool stuff. But I couldn't wait to get back to work because it's so fun. And the reason, one of the reasons it's fun for me is I get to work in the future. So my job, I'm, I'm, I have very um, uh, limited kind of day-to-day operational uh, needs. That, you know, I'm, I've constructed my job so that I don't have to be pulled into the present. I can stay two or three years in the future. And actually, I'm, I'm, I'm always advising my senior team, the people who report to me, that they should organize themselves in the same way. We're big enough now that they need to be able to look around corners. They can't be, if something pulls me into the present, it's because something has gone wrong. Um, you know, and, and we need to, you know, kind of figure it's a, it's a firefighting exercise. And that's not how you should be running a business of this scale. So it's changed a lot. I, I don't know. I find the, that response uh, pretty interesting because it's so much different than the Buffett style approach that we are constantly studying. I know Buffett, he's trying to figure out the valuation of a business based off the free cash flows into the future and kind of understanding what the assets, how durable those assets are and whether they'll be impaired into the future. But it seems like Bezos is is trying to invent the future and it, it's where his primary focus is at almost all the time. Like he's totally hired somebody else to take care of the day-to-day operations because he doesn't even want to think about it, which I also find fascinating. The, the one thing in there that I really liked, Brian, was he was talking about how much of his time is, is consumed into the culture. 
And then he made that statement, customer obsession. He said customer obsession after he was talking about the culture that he's trying to groom there. So like for me, that that's like a slip of his like secret sauce. And anybody who's studied Bezos a little bit knows that it's like he, he basically has the uh, chair on, at the conference room that's empty and supposedly the customer's sitting in there and everyone has to you know, ask the customer a question to the empty chair or whatever. But, um, I mean, really that's his secret sauce. He wants customers to be obsessed with his brand and he's, and if it doesn't create that obsession, he doesn't do it. So, yeah, no, you're exactly right. He focuses on the customer and not the competitor. This is uh, what Apple did as well. Give the customer what they, what they want before they know they want it. Um, so yeah, I think that strategic thinking, looking around the corners, I think was key and uh, and I also think you know think about how he focuses on the important but not urgent, right? So there's this famous like quadrant of uh, of things where you have urgent on one axis and uh, important and not important on the other other axis. And so which quadrant do you want to be in? And um, I think about the important uh, but not urgent um, because if you don't focus there, everything will end up in the important and urgent uh, quadrant, and you'll spend all your time, as he says, putting out fires. Uh, that's really, uh, really key, I think. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. 
Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So the next one that I want to talk about here is something that's a little outdated, but I think that it's an interesting conversation to, to listen to this. Um, he was asked, and this was played. Do you remember when this was played, Brian? It was, yeah, it was uh, 2014, late in 2014. Yeah. 2014, this was played and uh, he's talking, he was asked, you know, your company's not profitable. Uh, does that bother you when people say your company's not profitable? And this is his response. And, and why this is a little outdated is because, you know, Amazon's obviously making some in- net income at this point, but it's not, it's not huge relative to their top line revenue. If you're looking at it proportionally, it's not huge. He's, he's bringing in some earnings, but um, even, even, now it's still kind of hit or miss sometimes. Well, I think this is an interesting question just to hear his mindset and how he thinks about this stuff. So that's why we're going to play this one. Warren Buffett has this great quote. He says, you can hold a rock concert and that's okay. And you can hold a ballet and that's okay. Just don't hold a rock concert and advertise it as a ballet. Investors come in all shapes and sizes. They have different investment horizons, different approaches, different uh, beliefs about what the right kind of portfolio uh, looks like. And uh, so it's not one, you know, people use Wall Street as a shorthand, but there isn't one type of investor. They come in all shapes and sizes. And you have to be super clear about what kind of company you're trying to build, what your approach is. We laid that out in our 1997 annual shareholder letter. We said we were going to take big bets. We said they were going to fail. We said some of them hopefully were going to work. Uh, We said we were going to invest for the long term, that we were going to uh, try to take advantage of market opportunities as they arose. And there's a certain kind of investor who is aligned with that approach. And so, again, you can hold the ballet or the rock concert, and both can work. Um, Just be clear about which one you are, and then people can self-select. I would say, you know, it's very difficult for uh, a publicly traded company to switch. So if you've been holding a rock concert, and then you want to have a ballet, that transition is going to be difficult. Um, But if you've done it from the very beginning, and uh, then I think it's not that difficult to do. We would all love all of our numbers to be smooth lines up and to the right, and uh, that would be terrific, but that's not how it works. You know, um, you know the, those numbers are, are output measures, and you, I mean, I guess you could try to manage your quarterly earnings very precisely, but I, I think personally that would be a mistake. You know, most of the work that we put into um, any particular quarter happened years ago. So it's not, you know, there's, there aren't that many knobs you can turn during a quarter. I mean, you can, but they're, very, they're like eating your seed corn if you turn those knobs. You don't want to do that. And so uh, it's, it's uh, uh, I, you know, people, uh, I think if you focus on the controllable inputs to your business instead of the outputs, in the long term, you get better results. So the, the Benjamin Graham quote here is that in the short term, the, stock market is a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. And I think people are well advised to build a company that wants to be weighed and not voted upon. 
and that means having good return on invested capital and having you know uh, lots of free cash flow. But if you said to me, if I said, here's a job I would reject. If somebody came up to me and said, Jeff, I want your job to be to um, uh, drive up the Amazon stock price and just manage that directly. Now, this might sound ridiculous to some of you, but many companies actually do this. They have they actually go out and they try to sell the stock. That's kind of the final output. And it's much better to say, okay, let's not do that. That's not going to be sustainable. It's kind of a silly approach. Um, what are the inputs to a higher stock price? And you say, okay, well, free cash flow and return on invested capital are inputs to a higher stock price. Okay, so let's, let's, let's keep working backwards. What are the inputs to free cash flow? And you keep working backwards until you get to something that's controllable. And a controllable input for free cash flow would be something like lower cost structure. And then you back up from there and you say, okay, well, you know, if we can improve our picking efficiency in our fulfillment centers and reduce defects, defects are very, very costly. It's probably, you know, reducing defects at the root is one of the best ways to lower cost structure. And so if you, then that starts to be a job you would accept. You would say, if you're, you know, a reasonable person, you would say, I have no idea how to uh, drive up the stock price. I can't manage that directly. It's not a controllable input. But I, I can make your picking algorithms more efficient. And that will reduce cost structure and then, you know, follow that chain all along the way. That's what you do in all of these businesses. You, you, you want, you know, customer obsession. You want to invent your way out of boxes. You want to invent your way into the future. You want to be patient. And you want to have operational excellence uh, so that you're finding defects at the root and fixing them. So that was some powerful stuff there. I, I love that last part where he's talking about what's your output versus what's your inputs. And it's, it's funny how much, even in business schools, and Brian, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you saw the same thing at MIT, but business schools focusing on the stock price and just looking at things from like the pure numbers on the financial statements opposed to let's go and dig deeper. Well, what, what drives free cash flow? What drives this? And then ultimately arriving at, you have to be adding value to the customer. That's what, that's what he was really describing there at the end is he's lowering his cost structure, which then that's being, you know, uh, carried out to the, to the customers. They get lower prices and they're more satisfied relative to the competition. So um, I love that discussion. I'm curious what some of the points you took out of it, Brian. Yeah. First, Clearly, he's listening to uh, your podcast because he's talking about <laughs> cash flow and return on invested capital as, as good measures of, of the, the health of the business. And he also, you know, he highlighted the lunacy kind of, of quarterly reports. Nobody yeah. is their business of quarterly reports and even, you know, yeah. to some degree, annual reports. And, and that's what I heard at, at Sloan as well is, uh, you know, when the CEOs would come and talk to us. Uh, you you know that it's there that they think about stock price because in, in a lot of ways and let's just be honest that's how they're compensated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of a lot of really uh, great points about investing for the, the the future and that sort of thing. There was a, a just a touch of selection bias here, right? We're, we're listening to uh, you know an answer of Jeff Bezos here um, in 2018, uh, and he was saying these you know grandiose things in 1997. Had none of that worked, we wouldn't be talking about Jeff Bezos right now. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a little bit of looking backward, you know, to look forward. So, 
Um, yeah, some really great stuff, though, in, in terms of uh, being, you know, guided by principles of long-term investing. You know, the one thing that uh, I think about whenever I hear that response, you, the first thing you think is, well, why are so many CEOs being driven by the stock price and not looking at it the same way that Jeff is describing it here? And the only thing that I can come up with is he he has made his money, right? He's he's a major shareholder in Amazon. And so he's not looking for the bonus. He's not looking for the, what this guy's the wealthiest person on the planet. So he's just trying to create the best business possible. And I think when you, when you go out there and you look at other businesses that do operate the way he's describing, um, oftentimes you find a similar situation where the CEO slash founder owns 30% of the stock and is making decisions based on what he thinks is going is to add the most customer value and what's best for the business, opposed to how can I get a $10 million bonus this year? And, sure, short versus long-term uh, returns, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's not, it's not uh, guaranteed you're going to see that across similar structures, but I think that you find it more common in similar situations as, as what we just described as far as the governance of the of the business. Yeah. You can focus on social impact and, and being a better citizen. And, uh, and he'll talk a lot about that kind of stuff. So uh, here's an interesting question because it's often brought up about uh, his ownership of the Washington post. And uh, I, I found this really fascinating to hear his, his comments on this because the question that was asked was, did you buy the Washington post as a personal toy or just wanted to, basically influence or put your political spin on things is that why you bought it and uh this was his response you can explain things to people but you can't understand things to people and so i can i i can you know uh all i can do is 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 say what really my thought process was and i was not looking to buy a newspaper i had i had it had never even crossed my mind um and so when the opportunity came up, uh, because I only came up because I had known Don Graham at that point for more than 15 years. Any of you who are lucky enough to know Don knows that he is the most honorable gentleman uh, that you'll ever meet. He's a remarkable guy. And he so loved the post that he believed, even though this was a huge personal sacrifice for him because it had been in his family for so long, that he needed to find a new home for it. Um, I think he was, I think he didn't, there were certain purchasers he was hoping would not end up yeah. buying the post um, because he wanted it to remain independent. Yeah. Um, he, when, so when he approached me uh, with this, I, I said, you know, I'm the wrong guy because I don't know anything about the newspaper business. And he said, that's okay, because we have a lot of people at the post who know a lot about the newspaper <laughs> business. And what we really need is somebody who knows something more about the internet. Um, and uh, the Post was uh, in very difficult financial position at that time. Um, and so for me, I had to decide, what, was it hopeless? And I didn't Ooh. believe it was hopeless. Ooh. I thought I was optimistic that the Post could be turned around. Um, and then second, I had to decide, did I want to put my own time and energy into this? Um, uh, and, and that, for me, I just had to ask the simple question, is it an important institution? And the answer to that question is yes. It was very obvious to me. As soon as I thought about it that way, it's like, okay, I think I actually can help. I can help in two ways. I can provide financial resources while this turnaround occurs. 
and I can also help with my internet knowledge. And then, is it worth? Is it an institution worth saving? You bet. It's the it's the most important newspaper in the most important capital city in the Western world. I, I Crazy see. not to not to save that newspaper. I assume they I'm going to be very happy when I'm 80 that I made that decision. <laughs> the Post is it for me. I'm Except not in, I'm not interested in buying other newspapers. Um, but I do, I do, I watch that movie and, um, uh, you know, it's, it's helpful. Uh, I love that movie and also reading Catherine Graham's memoir, which won a Pulitzer Prize and is an amazing book. Um, because it, it gets me ready. You know, I, I, as the owner of the post, I know that at times the post is going to write stories. They're going to, uh, make very powerful people very unhappy. I would be humiliated to interfere. I would be so embarrassed. I would, I would turn bright red, and it, it has nothing to do with, um, I don't even get so far, I just don't want to. For me, it would feel icky. It would feel gross. It would, feel, it would be one of those things when I'm 80 years old, I would be so unhappy with myself yeah. if I interfered. Why would I? Yeah. I want that paper to be independent. Um, so it's in, well, we have a fantastic editor in Marty Barron. We have a fantastic publisher in Fred Ryan. The head of our technology team, a guy named Shailesh, is fantastic. They don't need my help in, in the newsroom for sure. Um, first of all, that's also an expert's job. It would be like me getting on the airplane and going up to the front of the plane and saying the pilots should move aside. Let me do this. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered, and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day, you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. 
Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So it's pretty interesting discussion to hear how that really unfolded. And it's just kind of like a family friend. He was friends with the owners and they wanted to offload it to the right person. And he was the guy. Now, what I, what I think is admirable in the way that he looked at this is he asked himself, is this something that society should value? Is this something that's that adds value to society? And whenever he concluded, yes, that's that weighed heavily in the way that he, made his decision. And I, I find that really important. And I think that that's something that a lot of people maybe not know about the way that Jeff makes decisions on the types of businesses and assets that he, that he purchases. Now, was that just because he was, you know, giving a presentation and in a briefs? Well, maybe a little bit, I, I don't know, but I think that that's something that, uh, I don't know. I, th- I think that's something people should really think about whenever they're creating a new product or service. Yeah. So p- perfect point. I mean, he really just highlights his thinking between short and long-term value to his customers, right? Because he modulated in his his answer there from market opportunity, this opportunity came up, you know, I, I looked at it from, a, you know, guiding values, you know, point of view. And then he ended up talking about uh, it as an institution and how he'd feel when he is 80 years old. And I think what he's talking about there is long-term value to society. Okay. So for this uh, next question, uh, he's asked, how do you manage disparate businesses? And this was his response. We do so many different things. So this is the question I sometimes get. How can you do so many different things? Why don't you stick to the knitting? The kind of traditional advice would be to stay focused and keep the business simple. And the the way I think about this is we actually do stick to one thing. It's just not um, described. It's not the business itself. We do web services, which is, you know, big enterprises buying compute services from us. And 
we have our retail business and we have Amazon Studios, which is making original content, Amazon Go, the things you listed. So, but the, the cultural thread that runs through all these things is the same. We only have a few principles at Amazon, kind of core values that we go back to over and over again. And if you looked at each of the things that we do, you would see those run straight through everything. So the first one, and by far the most important one, is customer obsession. And we talk about it as customer obsession as opposed to competitor obsession. And I have seen over and over again companies talk about that they're customer focused, but really when I pay close attention to them, I believe they are competitor focused. And that's just a completely different mentality. By the way, competitor focus can work, um, but I don't think it works in the long run as well as customer focus. For one thing, once you're the leader, if your whole culture is competitor obsessed, it's kind of hard to stay energized and motivated if you're out in front. Um, whereas customers are always unsatisfied, they're always discontent, they always want more. And so no matter how far you get out there in front of your competitors, you're still behind your customers. So they're always pulling you along. So customer obsession is a deep principle that underlies everything we do. Another one is eagerness to invent. So we love to pioneer. And when we have done, by the way, whenever we have tried to do something in a kind of me too fashion, we have failed at it. Um, we need to have something that is differentiated, unique, uh, something that customers are gonna like that we're kind of leading with. So that's another element that works for us. And then uh, another one is long-term thinking. We are willing to, uh, to, to take some time and be patient with our business initiatives and that runs through everything. So a lot of our competitors might have, have two to three year kind of time frames and we might have more of a five to seven year sort of time frame. And then the last one, operational excellence. So li literally, you know, how do you have high standards around, you know, identifying defects, fixing defects at the root, all of those kinds of things that lead to what I think also can be in a simpler way, just stated as professionalism, that you want to do things right just for the sake of doing them right. So I, I really like that uh, piece. And I liked how he said the, the part there about every time we've tried to compete with something that basically beat us to the punch or that created something before us, and then we try to bring something to market that competes with that, it's never really worked out too well for us. Um, that is a really interesting statement because, I mean, they've got so many different products and so many different things on their, uh, you know, assets on their balance sheet. So for him to say that um, with the size of their balance sheet, I think that's really telling. And this really goes to uh, we've never covered this book on the show, but it's called Blue Ocean Strategy. Um, it's a pretty popular book, but that's the whole premise of the Blue Ocean Strategy is that you create your own stuff. And you're not in this competition mode. You're you're more looking to satisfy the customer. Brian, I'm curious what, what some of the points you pulled out of there. Yeah, I think he, just the way he frames it, is that we don't do lots of things. We do one thing. That one thing is comes down to customer obsession, eagerness to invent, you know, having that long-term vision. I mean, at the bottom line, they leverage a platform, and that platform is is logistics. And so, you know, you just look at uh, the day that they bought Whole Foods or the day that that was announced – Grocery chains were down 8 to 10% in their market cap. Think how much money was lost just because Amazon was going to take their platform 
and uh, and apply it to this new industry. I guarantee you, Jeff wasn't thinking about um, how can I be the best grocer. He was thinking about how do I use those those guiding principles, that customer obsession, and really change the the grocery experience. Yeah, yeah. No, I I'm I'm really excited that he basically broke out the four big rules for people to kind of hear how he analyzes uh, pretty much everything that comes across his desk. And really that's the culture he's, he's breeding those big four points into his culture for anybody that comes in and briefs something. Um, I think that's a very keen insight and definitely worth writing down. If you're creating your own business and think about uh, that vantage point. Hey, so the this next one, I don't know if uh, your your everyday entrepreneur might gain insights or whatever out of this one, but I just think it's cool. So I want to play this question. It relates to uh, he was asked, "What in the world is Blue Origin up to?" And uh, for people that aren't familiar with this, Blue Origin is a space company. So he's going to talk about this in the next one. Well. Um Blue Origin is, the vision for Blue Origin is millions of people living and working in space. And the key thing is we have to dramatically reduce the cost of access to space. Right now, space travel is very expensive. And the reason it's expensive is not hard to understand. It's because we throw the hardware away after each use. And so we need reusable rocket vehicles. And that's what Blue Origin is working on. We're working on... um, making sure that we don't have to throw the plane away every time after you fly you know, to your vacation destination. That would definitely increase the cost of your vacation. And, um, and so uh, that's what we need to do. And we can do it. It's totally possible. Uh, and I think, it's, I think it's important. My view is, like, is that it's, it's incredibly important work that um, needs to be done and done as quickly as possible. And I have my own reasons why I believe that. They can be explained pretty simply and it's not for me. It's not the. Um, there's a very uh, co- kind of common argument that's been around for a long time. Actually, kind of first popularized by Arthur C. Clarke, who said all civilizations become spacefaring or extinct. And this is the kind of Plan B argument that you know when Earth is destroyed somehow, um, we better make sure that we don't have all of our eggs in one basket. And I hate the Plan B argument. Um, I think, you know, plan B with respect to Earth being destroyed is make sure plan A works. So we have sent robotic probes to every planet in this solar system. Believe me, this is the best one. (laughs) We know that. It's not even close you know, my friends who say they want to uh, move to Mars or something, I say, like, why don't you go live in Antarctica for a year first? Because it's a garden paradise compared to Mars. <laughs> and um, so we really, this, is the, this planet is so amazing. It's a jewel in our solar system. And we have, uh, if you take baseline energy usage on Earth and just compound it at a few percent a year for just a few hundred years, you have to cover the entire Earth's surface in solar cells. So that's not going to happen. So we have two choices. We either go out into space or we switch over to a civilization of stasis. And personally, I do not like the idea of stasis. You know, we have... Uh, it's, it, we, our grandchildren and their grandchildren will live in a much better world 
if they can continue to advance and develop and use more energy um, and, and all of the things that we've enjoyed for hundreds of years as a civilization of growth. I don't even really believe in stasis. I think things are either growing or shrinking. I, don't, I think stasis is highly, highly uh, unusual and in, in real life doesn't exist. I don't even think liberty is consistent with the idea of stasis. I mean, if the, you get real stasis, somebody's going to have to tell you how many kids you can have how much energy you can use. There'll be all kinds of things that just aren't consistent with, with liberty and freedom. So, but in space, we have, for all practical purposes, unlimited resources. We could have a trillion humans in the solar system uh, and wouldn't, still wouldn't be crowded. Um, and so then if you had a trillion humans, you'd have a thousand Einsteins and a thousand Mozarts and a thousand Da Vinci's. And how cool would that be? But we have to go to space. And we have to go to space to save Earth. That's why this work is so important, and we don't have forever to do it. We've now gotten so big as a civilization on Earth that we kind of have to hurry. And so I believe that, um, that, you know, that, that really in a kind of a long time frame, the most important work I'm doing is, is Blue Origin and pushing forward to get humanity established in the solar system. You know, I, it wasn't in this interview. I heard a, a different interview with him. And one of the things that uh, he kind of, um, he, he, he went into a little bit more depth on this narrative that he was talking there. And a lot of it revolved around the speed at which humans are consuming energy. And he, he started spouting off all the numbers and he says, you know, in the last 10 years, the amount of energy that an individual human is using went up by this amount and by whatever date, um, the, the energy consumption that we're going to need would pretty much have the whole planet covered in, in solar panels. And that's so he kind of cut that piece of the narrative out. And it was a really interesting discussion that he said in a different interview um, but that's what's really driving his narrative on why he thinks humans need to uh, really kind of push outside the planet. I, I also find it interesting that I think Elon Musk would tell you almost the exact same narrative uh, with respect to, you know, we've got to become uh, a multi-planet or outside of the earth type species in order to continue to exist. If, if you're thinking anything outside of a couple hundred years from now. So, Brian, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this one. Yeah, really two things, right? First of all, I like how, again, reframes the question. Uh, what's the thing that's keeping us from doing this? And it's a logistics problem, right? You Reusing that aircraft. And so, again, can he leverage his platform to maybe solve that problem? And the other thing that uh, that I heard as I listened to him uh, talk was, I, I think he could have been answering the Washington Post question again, right? Uh, he says, important work needs to be done. I could have heard him say, hey, am I going to wish at 80 years old that I, you know, I hadn't done this or that sort of thing? Um, I really think uh, that, that he is thinking about long-term impacts and, uh, and what he needs to do um, as being a good uh, member of society. So do you think that he got to that point because he's just worth so much money and it's kind of like, okay, so what do I do with my life at this point? Or do you think that Jeff Bezos like was like this from day one? And I know there's no way to, to be able to answer yeah. that, but it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? He's like a boss <laughs> off the chart. Of, has, he is, you know, taking care of himself and family and, and roof and food and everything else. Um, and so really you can look outside and, and how can he do the greatest good for the greatest number of people? And, yeah. you know, I applaud people that are, that do that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, many of the world's richest people are starting to think about that, how I, they can, can create a, a positive impact on, uh, on society. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, I I really like the uh, the discussion around this stuff. What I also find interesting, Brian, is that um, I believe he was the first one to land the rocket upright. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. I think most people would tell you that that was Elon Musk, but it wasn't. Uh, in fact, I believe whenever Musk did land his rocket upright, um, Jeff Bezos sent him a tweet and said something to the tune of, hey, man, welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, I think this just speaks to the, how those two gentlemen conduct themselves. You know, they, they're both doing very important things, but one chooses to do it more in the public eye uh, than the other. And Jeff is just maybe a touch more quiet about it. Yeah, what's, you know, Elon, I mean, he's just shooting his car into space. That's it. <laughs> It's it's some of the best uh, marketing ever, right? That thing worth $80,000 and he got how many millions of dollars worth of uh, free advertisement? uh, Oh, yeah. Hey, he's got to do something to keep that stock price uh, propped up. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about earning money and uh, and going after a loss for as long as possible, right? Probably a whole other interview we could talk about. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure that people listening to this, because you get people that are very polarized on that discussion. You got some diehard Tesla fans, and then you got some people saying it's going to, you know, get crushed. So we're not going to go down that path. We're just, we're just saying, you know, maybe it might be a little overvalued. We'll see. Um, but okay. Uh, Brian really enjoyed talking some of these points over with you. So I want to tell the audience, um, Brian, do you remember what episode it was that we talked about your business? I can't remember what episode number it was. It was, gosh, it's been a few months. I think it was 174. I was researching it uh, the other day and, uh, and looking at what, how long ago was that? I think it was January or something like that. Uh, we'll check it out. If I, I, you might be right. It's 174 episode 174. We had Brian on the show and he talked about his business. He has a business called Claudine Wines. That's C-L-A-U-D-I-N-E wines.com. It's the coolest business model. He does uh, high-end wines at affordable prices where he like buys barrels from Napa Valley, sends them out. But we, we talk about his business model on that episode. So if you're interested about this, go back, listen, kind of, it's, a, it's near the end of the episode. But he talks about his business. It's super cool. Check it out. I guarantee it's going to be some of the best wine you drink. Um, and uh, you know, shoot shoot me a message. I'll forward it off to Brian if you enjoyed if you enjoyed his wine. So Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show and filling in for Stig. He's uh, he's on his way to Denmark, and uh, it's always great having you back on the show. Preston, always a pleasure to uh, to chat. Let's do it again sometime. Yep, absolutely. All right, so that's all we have for you guys on this week's episode of The Investor's Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Yeah, 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 yeah.